The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Shmuel Reichman will now present his lecture, What Sets Jewish Spirituality Apart? Avraham's Secret Gift to the World. Okay, so I want to share something with you that's very deep, that's very powerful. But I think the best place to start is with the story. And the story goes like this. There was a captain in a ship that was out at sea. And it was a foggy night. And he could barely see. And he gets the info from his scout that there's a light up ahead, meaning there's another ship ahead. And they have in the radar scan that they are directly in their line, meaning that there's going to be a collision. So the, ca the captain takes the radio, and he radios this other ship, and he says, how you doing? We are in a direct collision course with your ship. Please move 30 degrees. So a couple seconds later, he gets back a signal on the radio. How are you doing? Why don't you move 30 degrees? So the captain's like, I'm captain, captain of a battleship. So he signals back to the ship and he says, listen, I am the captain of a battleship. You better move your ship 30 degrees right now or you'll be facing the consequences. A couple seconds later, he gets back a signal. I'm a second class seaman. You had better move your ship 30 degrees. So right now there's an ego battle going on. The captain's getting a little impatient. He's like, you listen up close, okay? And remember, he's, they're not really speaking, they're just sending messages, but if you don't move 30 degrees right now, I will destroy your ship. This is a battleship. I'm not just the captain of a ship, this is a battleship. And I don't know who you think you're speaking to, but you are going to move now. The captain feels excited, feels like he's really showed him who's boss. A couple seconds later, he gets another signal. I'm a lighthouse, your move. And of course the captain changed course. But I think that, and this story has stayed with me ever since I first heard it. It's a very well-known story, but it's a powerful story. It's the power of a paradigm shift. It's when you see something some way and you're so certain that you see things as they are, that you know, you, you, you know, you know the truth. You know what's right. You know exactly how things are. And then suddenly everything shifts. And you retroactively realize that you had no idea what was reality and what wasn't, what was true and what was false. And all of a sudden you begin to question your other paradigms. You say, if wait a second, if, if something that I knew to be true wasn't true, then what else? What else is there in my life that I could be shifting? Like, raise your hand if you've ever had a paradigm shift. Raise your hand if you've ever had something that you knew to be certain, that you knew to be true, and then all of a sudden, you had that little shift, and you're like, whoa. Like, I guess I gotta start taking a step back and saying maybe I don't know everything as it is. And what I'd like to share with you today is a powerful paradigm shift. A one which I think will 
transform the way that you see yourself, you see the world, that you see spirituality and Judaism in particular. But in order to do that, I want to just start by, by telling you a little bit about myself, giving you a little bit of introduction. Anyone who doesn't know who I am, my name is Shmuel Reichman. I'm an, I'm an inspirational speaker, I'm a writer, I'm an educator. I'm the founder of Self Mastery Academy, which is a company which creates online courses, inspirational content, paradigm shifting content. And I like to start off by just saying that I think that if we all think about it, I think we all have dreams. I think we all have things that we want to accomplish with our life. We all have ambitions. We have things that we would like to do. And very often, it's difficult because we want to have better relationships. We want to have a vibrant spiritual life. We want to have more vitality and physical health. We want to have you know, financial security. We want to have emotional, psychological well-being. But often we look around and we see other people who are so far ahead of us. And we question, is it really possible? But by raise of hands, who wants all that? Who wants all that? Everyone wants it, right? That's, that's what life is. We're trying, we're seeking, we're, we're striving, we're yearning. But oftentimes we see other people who just seem to have it and we get turned off. We get uninspired by the fact that we are so far behind where we think we should be, where we want to be, the things that are falling apart in our own lives that seem to be just going so well in everyone else's life. And I just want to start off by just telling you a little bit about my story. If anyone who doesn't know me, I was a, I was a very normal kid. Actually, I, I was an athlete. I was very athletic, and I was, I was going to be a football star. I was, uh, I was going to go for the pros. I was going to go for the NFL. And I was, on, I was on that trajectory. Everyone else thought I was going to make it too. But then in kindergarten, I broke my knee, and it... <laughs> So I still remember the first day of kindergarten. Does anyone remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that first day of kindergarten. You were there too? I remember. You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I want to share something with you that will change your life, that will change the way you see everything. But to do that, I want to take you back to when I was a teenager. Because when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an inspirational speaker. I dreamed of doing this. I dreamed of being someone who gets up and inspires people because I love them. I would go to these events and they were excited. They were vibrant. They were full of energy and they were talking about like, living your greatest self. And I was like, yes, like, I want to live my greatest life. I want to do that. I want to inspire others. But I noticed something with almost like, no exception that they all had these, these same life stories that they face this near-death encounter, and that inspired them. Or they had some heartbreak, or they had some medical or health condition. And because of that, they overcame it, and then they want to share their message and want to inspire others. And that was that shift, that paradigm shift in their life. And I was just unlucky because near-death encounter, nope. Heartbreak, nope. Medical health issue, nope. So I was just, uh, I, was, I was a normal guy. I was just walking through life. And then oh, it all came rushing in. It all came rushing in. Everything changed. And it didn't come one at a time. It came all at once. I remember the first time I was walking throughout my day, and I was fine. I felt fine. I felt great. And then I felt this pain in my stomach. 
And then I felt the pain in my head. And then I remember waking up. But I didn't just wake up. I remember struggling to come back to consciousness. I remember it being almost like, like I wasn't going to come back and I was pushing and pushing and pushing. It was the scariest thing I ever experienced in my entire life, mostly because I had no idea what was happening. And I was soon to experience this again and again and again. And over the next six months, this was happening on a weekly, monthly basis, and I never knew when it was going to struck. All I knew is that 20 to 30 seconds before it happened, I'd have those same sensations, and I would just start to look up and say, why? Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. I ain't, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? And I remember being so lost, and we go to doctors, and they didn't know why it was happening. And I just remember thinking, I don't know if I'm going to wake up the next time this happens. I don't know why this is happening. And I, every day I thought, this might be the last day I'm on earth. I did not know. And it was the most overwhelmingly unstable part of my life. And that didn't end there because then I got my heart broken. And when you get your heart broken, your identity crumbles, it shatters, because the person that you associate yourself with all of a sudden is not there anymore. And if you're not a strong person, if you don't have that chosen identity, the person that you connected yourself to is no longer there and you find yourself lost. So I was facing death on a daily basis. I had no idea who I was. And then something happened to my throat. And I couldn't speak anymore, because every time I tried to speak, it felt like a dagger was stabbing my vocal cords in my throat and I really had to choose every word and I was speaking like almost not at all and this was happening not like you know one then one then one all at once and in that six month basis in that six month period my entire life changed because I began asking myself questions I never before considered like, why am I here? What's my purpose? What can I contribute to the world? What am I going to make my life about? What's going to be my mission? Because I don't know if I'm going to be here till tomorrow. I was asking myself the questions that people ask way down the line at the end of their life, the midlife crisis questions I was asking when I was about 20. And I didn't know if these were questions that were going to have an impact on my life because I didn't know if I was going to be around the next day. But thank God, the doctors were able to finally understand this was something called vasovagal. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but some things were happening inside my body that were having certain results, certain effects, and it basically my body would shut down. And I, it wasn't fatal, and it wasn't lethal, but you just had to know how to prevent it. And I, to make sure that if you did pass out, you weren't standing up so you didn't fall on your head and have a concussion. So I was able to prevent it. I was able to rebuild my identity, which I'd never done before. And I was also able to understand the value of speech because for someone that loses speech, that can't talk, you suddenly begin to value every word and understand that speech is something that can be a tool, something that you can utilize and something that you can use to inspire. So why is this important? Why am I telling you this? Because what happened changed not only my life at that point, but everything afterwards. Because when I was facing this, when I was facing death on a daily basis, I began to search, I began to learn, I began to read every book I could. I got mentors, I got coaches, I got teachers. I started to go and uh, seminars and webinars, online courses, audio lectures, videos. I was feeding my mind, I was learning new skills, I was learning new talents. And I was recreating myself, but I was also really finding myself for the first time. 
And there are so many people that never get that gift of that wake-up call, of that opportunity to really build yourself from the ground up, and I got that. And what I want to share with you, what I want to share with you now is perhaps the most important paradigm shift that I had. And it's the very depth of Jewish thought, the very depth of Jewish philosophy. It is the very core and center of what it means to be a Jew. And it is perhaps the most important thing I have ever learned. And if I were to tell you all the paradigm shifts, we can have 150,000 lectures. We're not going to do that. I want to share one powerful insight, an insight which you can carry with you. And if you have the simple principle, which we'll flesh out and delve a little deeper into, it will transform your Jewish identity, your Jewish experience, and just the very way that you go about being a Jew. And the best place to start is by asking a couple of very basic questions. The first question is like this. When you think of Avraham, Abraham, what did he contribute to the world? So if you'd ask a normal person on the street, what did Abraham contribute to the world? What would he say? What would a person say? Monotheism. It's what we're all taught. It's what everyone says. It's what everyone thinks. Now, what's the big flaw in that theory? A theory which we often don't question. So Avram represented chesed. What's the most basic question? The most basic question is that it's simply not true. Monotheism predated Abraham. Was Abraham the first person that encountered God in human history? No. Adam, Adam, had a relationship with God. Noah had a relationship with God. Shame and Aver were learning Torah and teaching Torah at the same time that Avraham was alive and predated Avraham. So why do we always associate this idea of monotheism with Avraham? And that's the first question. The first question is, well, like, is, it, is it true? Because I don't think it is true. I think we're going to have to take it a step deeper. And the second question is, if it's not true, then why has history convinced us that it is? Like, there has to be something there. The second question is that Judaism is a very peculiar and seemingly enigmatic religion. Because if you're going to think of a religion, what would you associate a religion with? Usually you associate it with spirituality, right? And yes, you can, you can try to disconnect spirituality from religion. And some people say that religions are the most unspiritual ways of living life. But if you're going to the core of a thought system of spirituality, you'd think that a spiritual system would be spiritual. And Judaism is perhaps the most physical religion on the face of the planet. I mean, if you're going to think of a spiritual system, you think of Buddhism. Buddhism is what? You go to a mountaintop and you meditate on your navel. It's a consciousness. It's a, it's, it's a, you're focusing on transcending the physical. You're focusing on getting rid of that physical desire, the, the physical nature of human beings, and you're becoming angelic. You're becoming post-physical, somewhat anti-physical even. And if you would take Judaism, how many of the mitzvahs, the commandments, are physical? All of them, except for maybe like five or six, to believe in God, to have awe of God, to not be jealous. Like there's a handful of spiritual, mindful mitzvahs. And yes, all the physical mitzvahs have mindfulness and spirituality to it, but it seems antithetical 
to have a spiritual system which is so physical. Because when we think of the goal of spirituality, aren't we trying to get out of our physical nature, of, of all the limitations that we have, of the fact that we're so con conflicted, that we have all these conflicting desires? I mean, that's really the goal of Buddhism, is to negate desire. If anyone's familiar with Buddhism, the goal is basically to get rid of will, to get rid of what we call ratsun, desire. Because the root of all pain and discomfort and depression is the fact that you want something and you don't get it. I want to be happy, but I'm not happy. I want to be wealthy, I'm not wealthy. I want to have great relationships, I don't have them. And because you want so many things and you don't have them, you're unhappy, you're depressed, you're in pain, you're, in, you're miserable. So therefore, negate will and you'll be great. But Judaism doesn't say that. We embrace will. We, we view will and, and Russian desire as the cornerstone and the most vital and important aspect of what it means to be human. But the question that I really want to ask is, why is Judaism such a physical religion? What, what happened to the spirituality? So the best place to start, and we're going to build a couple really fundamental ideas based off of the Maharal, the Ramchal, which were both fundamental Jewish thinkers, the Tanya, which is one of the most foundational Chabad thinkers. And the idea is like this. There are three approaches to living in this physical world. And if we're going to get more nuanced, we can break those three into a bunch of different categories. But we're going to start with three main principles, three main approaches to life. Because the way that you start, if you're a thinker, you start, okay, I'm in this world. I'm in a physical world, and I have to decide how I'm going to live my life. Now, some people don't decide. But if you're going to be a conscious, thought out, a real person, you're going to have to say, how am I going to build my life? How am I going to approach this world? How am I going to approach the fact that I'm going to face challenges? I'm going to have to face the fact that I'm a physical being. I'm going to die. And I have to decide how I'm going to live the life that I have to live. So one approach, which would be, I'd say, the more Western, secular, hedonistic approach, is just to you know, embrace the physical while it lasts, to live a completely physical life. And it's basically embracing human limitation, embracing human desire, embracing all of the conflicting aspects of human nature. It's not deciding to transcend or connect to anything higher. It's not even, I mean, you can have a nihilistic approach or it doesn't have to be nihilistic, but very often this is the nihilistic approach, which is that, listen, I don't, I have no proof that there's meaning to life. I don't need to project meaning onto my life. I can have what's called a contained meaning, which is to give meaning to my life without needing God or something transcendent. And I will live my life according to my terms, my rules. I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want, and then I'll die. And that's fine because we're all going to die. And why should I sacrifice this life when there's no, what they'd call proof or reason to connect anything higher? So they don't get overwhelmed by the philosophical questions of how to prepare for death, they say the best way to prepare for death is just to live your life fully and then just whenever that happens, it happens. And don't, you know, pretend to brainwash me into thinking that there is some other way to live your life because there's not. That's the, the, the classical, the, the, you know, you call it the scientific approach, call it the, the Western approach, call it the, the atheist approach. You can project whatever term you want, but the ideas behind it are somewhat logical. Those are the, the ideas behind it. 
The second approach is a more transcendent spiritual approach. And this would be, we'll show the contrast, but this would be the Buddhist approach and the Christian approach and the Islamic approach, which is a desire to transcend. It was the, you know, the classic philosopher's desire to somehow overcome death, is to make this life uh, a means to transcending. And if you do that, then what does this life become? This life becomes about overcoming your physical nature. Yes, you're limited. You don't know everything. You're not all good. You're not all kind. You're not, so to speak, angelic, but we can overcome our physical nature to become that way. And therefore, within the Buddhist approach, the whole purpose of life is to overcome your physical nature. You have physical drives to be you know, obsessed with food and physical pleasure and you know, all the, the natures of your, of your physical being. Those are the the challenges you face, overcome them. Don't get married. Don't be obsessed with food. Don't sleep. Don't be a physical being. Don't even encounter or embrace society or physical, like the physical world. Just go and transcend yourself. You know, just transcend and melt into the oneness of reality and don't come back. And one who has enlightened is one who has transcended their physical nature. One who has, so to speak, succeeded in the challenge of being a physical being. Is that you no longer are. You have transcended. And the Christian approach is very similar. If you want to be spiritual, you have to transcend the physical. You have to be celibate. In Christian thought, it is very, it's a lowly animalistic drive to be married to embrace your physical nature. You want to get rid of that. In Islamic thought, you can't even own alcohol. Alcohol is very physical. And then we get to the Jewish approach, which is this paradoxical, I mean, if you think about it, in Judaism, are you allowed to get married? No, no, you're not allowed. It's a mitzvah. You're supposed to. You look at the most spiritual people among us, the biggest rabbis, do they have one kid? Because look at Chabad rabbi, he has, think about it. We have so many kids when you go to the airport and people are looking at you like, how many kids do you have? These are all yours. But why? Isn't it more spiritual to transcend those natures? Do we have, are you allowed to have alcohol in Judaism? Are you allowed to have alcohol? Go to Fabrengan. <laughs> but think about it. By the time that a kid is eight days old, by a breast, we're already feeding him some wine. Every single spiritual experience in life is uplifted by wine. Kiddush. Kiddush, we have Shabbos, Yontif, a marriage. Every single spiritual experience, we're embracing the physical. And the question is, why? Because we showed two approaches. To embrace the physical is to get stuck in it. To transcend it is to view the physical as bad. And if you're spiritual, it seems that you want to reject the physical. But Judaism doesn't only embrace it, we uplift it. We, we almost view the physical as being the most spiritual. And the question is, why? What's the deep spiritual principle behind this? I mean, if you think about it, there's logic behind it. It's, the physical is dangerous. How many people do you know that get lost in it, that don't know how to use and uplift the physical? that don't know how to, so to speak, because we're talking about idealism. Idealism really comes from that root of idea, of living an idea, of living based on ideas. And if you want to live an idealistic life, it's challenging. And there is no question 
that people will fail when trying to embrace the physical because there are people who will become alcoholics and drug addicts and, and you know get addicted to physical pleasure. And the question is, why does Judaism take that risk? Why do we embrace the physical? We embrace alcohol, marital intimacy, all our mitzvos, our physical actions, except for a few like we just mentioned, so why? And the second question is, if there is an idea behind it, what is the best approach to succeed? Meaning, if we're going to take this idealistic approach, we are going to embrace the physical. We are going to live lives of uplifting our physical experience, not transcending it. What is the most important strategy of accomplishing this? And is this rooted in our Jewish observance, in our Jewish thought? So the best place to start is like this. The Ramban, the Maharal, and the Ramchal, very important Jewish thinkers, and the Tanya, once again, one of the foundational thinkers of Chabad, they develop the most essential principle when it comes to approaching the physical world. And in order to do that, we need to break down one of the most accepted and innate principles of the way that you naturally view spirituality. When a person is born into this world, they don't have a developed intellect. They don't have a post-rational way of thinking. They haven't developed a systematic way of viewing the world. So when you hear about the concept of spirituality or God, you think of spirituality as being out there. You think of God as being out there. And as such, you view almost by innate, like you haven't chosen this, but you're already having that Christian, Islamic, Buddhist thought of thinking that the only way you can be spiritual is by transcending. But these thinkers develop one of the most essential and foundational principles of Jewish thought, which is that what is the nature of the physical world? It's not separate from the spiritual world. It's an emanation. It's an expression. It's a manifestation. So if you think of a tree, how does a tree manifest into the world? It comes from a seed. Think about each one of us. Where did we come from? What were we originally? A zygote, a single half male, half female genetic code. If you would look at that little, that little zygote, little embryo, would you be able to see yourself? No, it doesn't look anything like you. But if you'd study it, you'd see that everything that you are now, physically at least, was already rooted in that root, in that seed, in that genetic makeup. And if you look at all of your cells now, it's that same genetic makeup. So how are we supposed to view the physical world? It is that tree that expresses from that seed. It's that fully grown essence that expanded from that spiritual root. And as such, we stem from spirituality, our physical bodies, the physical world. It's all a finite expression of spirituality. If you look at the way that the thinkers talk about it, it's, there's this process of condensing spirituality into physicality. If you learn quantum mechanics, you'll see very similar concepts and ideas in terms of how atoms stem from something that is, so to speak, beyond finite compression. And you have a lot of quantum mechanics scientists that have almost become spiritual because they've realized that there is this underlying consciousness behind physical matter. We're not gonna get into now, it's not exactly our topic, but the idea of something physical and finite stemming from something spiritual is a very deep spiritual concept which far precedes quantum mechanics but has really become like magic in their eyes when they start to realize that the physical universe 
I don't know how many of you are familiar, but until the early 1900s, there was a Newtonian perspective when it comes to physics. And physics was very finite and very physical and very logical and very systematic and everything made sense. You can deduce every aspect of what will happen, why it happened, how it happened. And then with the discovery of quantum mechanics, everything broke down. And they realized that the physical universe is not as we know it and not as we think of it, but it is actually unpredictable and almost spiritual at root. And Einstein said when he first, when he first heard of it, he denied it because he was obviously a, a logician and a, a, a very Newtonian scientist. He said it was spukhaftig, which is German for spooky. Right? And when the first quantum mechanics scientists were delivering their speeches discussing this, they said they, they, introduced, they introduced their speeches like this. I know what I'm about to tell you won't make any sense to you, and you won't understand it, but that's okay. We don't either. <laughs> and over time, it's become more accepted that the world is not as we know it, and that we're not as all-knowing and uh, all-capable as we think, and there is this entire field open of how to really understand the relationship between quantum mechanics and classical Newtonian mechanics and general relativity. But the question is like this. The question really becomes, how do we view practically, I mean, I just I give you the framework, the conceptual framework in terms of how to view the physical world, but practically what does this mean to us? Does the physical become something lowly, something finite, something that we have to get rid of or transcend, or is there a way of using it? And if there is, which we're gonna discuss in one moment, what's the principle of using it? Because now you know the, the somewhat of the what, like the nature of the physical, but why should we still be using the physical? If it's dangerous, if it's not as transcendent as the spiritual, What's the purpose of using it? I think the most important principle to develop is the power of potential. Because everything in this world has potential to be used for the right purpose or the wrong purpose. And there's this misconception that things are good or bad, right? You have, and if you talk to someone for a little over 10 minutes, you can start to realize if they have these preconceived notions that these things are bad. And these things are good. And it's usually because of their experience and their emotional you know, projections onto it. But some people will view money as bad. And maybe it's because they didn't have money growing up and their parents convinced them that money was bad. But money isn't bad. You can use money to do horrible things. You can use money to create institutions, to donate to incredible causes, to uplift people's experiences. Money is just potential. And the more potential you have, you can use it for the more good or the more bad. Electricity is potential. You can use it to get a little electric shock and you can use it to charge your appliance. You can use, and the more electricity, the more power. The more electricity you can light up a community or you can get electrocuted, right? It's not better or worse, it's more potential. And oftentimes you get these questions that assume, right? Break down every question you ever hear. Some questions assume things that just aren't true. I was, I was just asked a question very recently. How do we get kids off their smartphones since technology is destructive, right? So what's the assumption of that question? Technology is destructive. So I just answered very simply. Our goal is not to get kids off their smartphones. Our goal is to get them on a better path. Meaning what? Meaning that yes, smartphones can destroy a person's life. You know, people have no attention spans anymore. They're just being bombarded by input, by their texts and their WhatsApps and their emails and notifications and they don't have any peace of mind. They're not focused. They've done studies. 
that most people, the first thing they do when they wake up is what? Check their phone. And they've shown that that turns your entire day into a reactive experience. Because you're not, remember that first moment of consciousness, you get to decide what your day is about, who you're gonna be, the type of momentum, the type of drive, what you're gonna accomplish, the type of life you're gonna live. Most people don't decide, but even more than that, most people start their day reacting. Who liked my message? Who commented? Who sent me an email? And that's fine. There's nothing objectively bad about being connected to the world, but when you are not able to have a firm foundation of self, you lose yourself. And what happens is that people are reacting their entire day. And for those people, see, here's the, the, the interesting phenomenon. Shabbos has become, so to speak, for most people, this magical safe haven, this escape from technology. And for most people, it's like technology is bad and Shabbos is a way of escaping and getting real connection, self-awareness, reflection, and connecting with your family, having a meal with your family. Who does that anymore, right? But what happens to Shabbos? It gets this bad rep as being a way of escaping from the week. But Shabbos is not the escape from the week. Shabbos is meant to be the foundation. And this is really the important principle. What's, what's this, this, the Jewish approach to embracing the physical, to using the physical? How do we do that? And the answer is like this. The answer is that first, we do transcend. First, we do embrace the Buddhist approach. And then we come down and use. It's a two-step approach. It's a two-step approach. And I'd like to develop it as follows. What did Avraham contribute to the world? What was Avraham's revelation, his revolutionary thought? It was that we do not need to transcend the physical to be spiritual beings. We do not need to become angelic beings who are not present in this world. We can use the physical. That's why the gematria of Avraham is what? 248, which is the same number as what? The physical limbs in the human body. That's what the Talmud says. And number three, that's the same amount as positive physical mitzvot, commandments. Avraham represents using this world, not being used by it. Because remember, three ways you can approach the physical world, to be used by it, to be completely stuck in it, to transcend it, or to be, so to speak, above it and within it. To use it, not be used by it. And that's why, what was Avraham's mitzvah? His mitzvah, his commandment, what was his unique mitzvah? Bris milah, which is what? Taking the most physical organ in the human body, the, the limb of of marital intimacy and not saying that we are going to transcend it and not saying we're going to get stuck in it, we're going to uplift it, which is extraordinary and idealistic and a dream. But the question is now, how? Because very often people are either too practical or too idealistic. You either have, okay, listen, you can't really do all your dreams, so just like get very practical. Give up on the ambition. Give up on the dream. Give up on the idealism. Or you have people that are just all in the clouds, that are just the, the, you know, rah, 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 you can do it, you can do it. No practicality. And both of them lose something very powerful, which is the marriage between the two. The ability to take the transcendent ideas of what life should be, what life could be, and then to say, okay, how do I make that a reality? How do I make that my life? And very often we have inspirational talks and we walk away with like, wow, that was inspiring. And then we just go right back. 
And it's, it's like, it is the, the pet peeve of, of, of what this becomes. It becomes almost this like, you know, inspirational event, but not how do I live my life? And without the practical vessel, without understanding how to use the ideas, it almost becomes almost purposeless. It's still powerful. But without the tools, without the, the resources in terms of how to do it properly, why, why are we doing this? So let's talk briefly about how. We talked about the why. We talked about the, the nature of the physical world as being very inherently spiritual. But what is the Jewish approach to using the physical world? And that is the answer. It is to first transcend to first connect to your roots, to your ideals, to what you want your life to be, to that which is, so to speak, the Buddhist beyond physical, and then to come back down into the physical while being aware, conscious, and in control, and expressing that into the world. That's what Shabbos becomes. Shabbos is where you take that pause and you say, who am I? What am I really about? What am I living for? What are my goals? What are my skills? What are my talents? What can I do with my life? Where have I been? Where am I? Where am I going? You start to really become self-aware. You reflect. You have that quiet, that peace of mind. And then you come back down to the week and you use it. And the more abstract principle is Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which we're coming to very soon, and Sukkot, Sukkot. Those come back to back. What are they? Yom Kippur is the day of transcendence. We wear white, the, the men wear white on Yom Kippur because they are, so to speak, reflecting their angelic self. We say, Baruch Shem Kevod Ve'ed out loud on Yom Kippur and no other day of the year because those are the words that the angels say. And therefore we say quietly the rest of the year. But on Yom Kippur, we are embracing our angelic selves and that's why we act like angels. But then we come right back into the year. And Sukkot says that Yom Simchasenu, we feast, we have, you know, uh, festivals and excitement and there's meat and wine. Why? Because that's how we're supposed to approach this world. You start with the ideal, you start with who you are at root, and then you make that. Then you live that. We're supposed to be not angelic transcendent beings, but angelic beings that come down and actualize that in this world. We're not supposed to escape this world. We're not supposed to transcend this world. We're supposed to act transcendent in this world. And that is the paradox, that's the idealism, that is the gift that Avraham gave to the world. But here's the problem. It's hard. It's hard, it's hard. So many people, they hear this and they're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, I remember one of my favorite stories about these two boys that they love to ice skate. So they didn't have an ice skating rink in their, in their little town, but they did have a lake and it froze over in the winter. So they went to go skating and they were in the middle of skating when all of a sudden the ice cracked underneath one of the two boys and he fell through the ice. And his friend saw it and tried to grab him, but it was too late and the current rushed him under. So his friend was looking around and he saw this giant tree in the distance. So he ran over to that tree and he found this big branch. He pulled off this giant branch and he ran over back to his friend and started smashing and thrashing at the ice until he broke through the ice. He was able to pull his friend out and pull him back to safety and started to try to resuscitate him. By the time the ambulance came, they were able to save the kid. One of the, the younger ambulance members 
was just scratching his head. He said, listen, like, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. You have this scrawny little kid. How did he pull off that giant branch? And let alone smash through this thick ice. It doesn't make any sense. How did he do it? So one of the older ambulance members was smiling. He says, I'll tell you how he did it. How? How did he do it? There was no one there to tell him that he couldn't. And the question is, what could you do? What could I do? What could we all do if we didn't listen to that voice inside us that was always telling us we can't? Always telling us we're not good enough. Always telling us to repeat our past, that we are the product of our history. See, you are reading your script. You're reading your story. And our story is based off of our past. So if you haven't done it in the past, we think we can't do it in the future. But if you realize that you're writing your script, not reading it, then you can write a new story. You can begin a new path. And that is the most powerful paradigm shift. Time together. What life should be about and number two, you could do it. It's possible. And this is something which is the very definition of a paradigm shift. If you can change the way you think, you can change your life. Because the way we think affects how we feel. And the way we feel affects how we live. If you think you're great, you're destined for greatness, you can do anything, you can accomplish anything, you start to feel like, I can do it. Like, I have this energy to me, this vibrancy, this aliveness. I'm capable. I'm ambitious. That single paradigm shift, if I can, what happens when you feel like you can? You do it. So if you think you can, you feel like you can, and you live, I can. And there are so many people, they, they have this I can't mentality. I always say, no, it's not yet. Like, I don't know how to do this. No, you don't know how to do this yet. I've never experienced it. You've never experienced it yet. I'm not good at this, you're not good at this yet. You can learn. And there are two types of people, the people who are fixed, who are like, listen, whatever I got, I got. Whatever I am, I am, and that's it. And then there are people like, give it to me, give me the challenge, I can, I can learn it, I can do it. Show me how, teach me how. And the question we need to ask ourselves is which are we gonna be? Because if you can change the way you think you can change your life, but if you think the way you've always thought you will live the way you've always lived, and that's the power of the paradigm shift. It's taking control over your experience of life. You can't control what happens to you. You can't control your circumstances. No one controls if, you know, what family and your genetic makeup, your natural starting point in life. But you get to take that and say, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to ride with it? What am I going to make of myself? You have stuff within you. And if you believe you're capable of achieving something great, that you can share your message, your voice, make an impact, inspire one person, two people, 10 people, your family, your friends, you can bring something good into the world. If you believe it's possible, then nothing can stop you. And that's what that kid did when he broke through that ice. He's saving his friend. There's nothing that's going to stop him. And yes, Avraham came with this idealistic vision of life that we are not going to take the easy road. We're not going to escape the physical challenges of life. We're going to embrace them. Because we can. And if you can, you must. Think about that. If you can, you must. There are a lot of people that could do things, but they stop there. They don't feel that responsibility. 
the, to take personal ownership over their unique talents and gifts and voice, the things they could bring to this world. And if you could do that, you can change everything. Because, you know, Viktor Frankl, famous, famous uh, psychologist, he, he actually survived the Holocaust. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And he was bothered by this question, by what determined if someone was going to survive in the Holocaust? Because a lot of people gave up. They just said, I, I'm, I'm done with life. And then there were people that fought. If you look at pictures of people that came out of the Holocaust, there's, it, it's not only inhumane, it's like we can't imagine the comfort that we live in. We can't imagine surviving that. So he said, what was it that determined if someone was going to make it? And he came to a conclusion, which is that the Nazis can take everything from us, everything we have, all of our things, our possessions, our social circumstances, our reputations. They can change how we physically look. They can't take our minds and our souls. They can't affect what we think. We choose that. We choose the meaning we give to this experience. And he came to the conclusion that those that gave up decided that because their circumstance was so awful, they were awful. That because life was horrible, they were going to live a horrible life. But he found that there were people that said, no matter what happens to me, I get to decide the meaning I give to this. I can still find meaning no matter what is happening to me. Because my mind, my thoughts, my response, my paradigms are my own. And those that don't know that become prey and become slaves to their circumstances. And you see people, people that complain. People that complain are people that live based on their circumstance. But the people that never ask, why is this happening to me? But what can I learn from it? They never ask themselves, why me? But they ask themselves, what's my response going to be? Those are the people that make a difference in this world. Those are the people that are empowered because the same people that experience the same thing, one of them can be going in and out of rehab and the other person can be out there inspiring others with their story. They experience the same breakdown. They experience the same tragedy. They had the same awful internal experience, but one gave meaning to it. One decided to transform the experience. The other decided to become the result of the experience. And we get to choose. It's the power of choice. So just think in your own life. Am I choosing my life? Am I choosing my emotions? Am I choosing my experience? Because once you start to realize that our job is not to escape choice, our job is not to escape will, desire, but to embrace it to use the physical world, not to be used by it, to manifest something powerful with our lives and not to somehow just escape the human condition, then life becomes inspiring. It becomes exciting. It becomes an opportunity. Challenges become an opportunity. Look at the greatest people who have ever lived and they will all tell you that I am who I am because of my challenges. Not despite them, not because I overcame them. They molded me. They transform you because I decided to use them. Ask them. You know, the people who are fighting for gun rights, their kid was, you know, Rahman's son murdered. Person who's, you know, fighting for this right and fighting for this purpose and sharing this message, they'll tell you, it wasn't random. I used my personal challenges, my personal tragedy as an empowering way to live my life with purpose. 
And we all have a story, but oftentimes we're not aware of our story. I mean, if you look back at the past 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, there are things that happened that you at the time didn't understand or maybe buried in the back of your consciousness. If you can bring that up and say, wow, that was a turning point. Because of this, my life changed. I'm doing this today because of that. And start to give empowerment, start to recognize your story, who you are, why you are. That's why the Bali Machshava, the Jewish thinkers say you should write your own Megillah, your scroll. If you look at Megillah's Esther, the story of Purim, there's no miraculous event. Nothing. But what do we see? We see a bunch of seemingly circumstantial random things happening and then everything just works out. If you look at any single stage in that whole story, if one piece was missing, the whole thing would fall apart. Everything happened exactly as it must be, and that was the miracle of Purim. We don't have open miracles anymore. You don't see Hashem, you don't see God openly manifest in your life. What you do see is a bunch of seemingly random things happening to you. But you have to write your Megillah. You have to start to see how everything adds up, how every single small turn, how every little thing that happened to you was starting to build your ultimate story, your ultimate destination, how your story fits into a larger story of our story, of his story. And if you can recognize that, you can start to build so much meaning by recognizing the turning points in your life. And then the most important thing is not just to start writing your past, but from recognizing the beauty of your story, of that place you went to, that person you met, that decision you made, that little small thing, start to recognize that you can now pave your path moving forward. That you can start to use this world, not be used by it. You can start to create something extraordinary with this life you've been given. That this life is an opportunity and that it will not go to waste. That you have incredible stuff within you. And if we recognize that and we use that, we can really bring Avraham's dream, this idea, this gift of using the world, of understanding the spiritual nature of our physical experience, using it, uplifting it, and living our ultimate purpose, bringing our own lives and the lives of all of humanity and the entire world story towards its ultimate destination. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.